This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Thank you all for joining. Thank you all. Thank you all the Torah Anytime uh, um, subscribers and, and listeners that are listening wherever you are. Tonight we are learning Leilu Nishmat Rabavram Ben Chaim Yehuda and Rabbi Cheskel Ben Rabavram. So, um, tonight we're continuing along the, the, the topics that we've been discussing throughout the past, uh, uh, really current events of the past, uh, what was it five, almost five weeks already? No, maybe more. 40, 45, 40, yeah, yeah. So, uh, um, and the idea really is how to deal with it. Now, it's not just a, the lessons that, that, I, I tried to bring out is not just lessons that you can learn related to the war, related to current events. These are lessons for day-to-day lives. And it's especially true with tonight. This is something that's, that's very important. It's actually a, a very important lesson, uh, for life that I strongly recommend everybody not just put it into, uh, the current events, but rather any aspect of your life. You can really, uh, really pl- plug it in. So the way that I would like to, uh, present this is to go through through a uh, uh, bunch of different varying emotions because that is really what we are going through in this in these days uh, we go through these different emotions and a roller coaster of emotions if you may throughout our day-to-day life but when things are an edge when things are on a heightened sensitivity it's all the more so and we could be switching anywhere from anger to sadness, from frustration to anxiousness, from fear to dread, and anywhere in between. Now, like, when you look at the news, the same article or, or, or the same piece of news, reading it from different point of views, can bring you different emotions that, that come out. You could look at an article that speaks about the death of, uh, you know, the, the IDF death toll, which obviously will bring you, uh, sadness. And then you look at another article which, uh, speaks about the attack on Israel and I'll give you like this this anger. And then you'll look at something in response to that where people say, oh, well, Israel is uh, responding too strong. A very common claim that's going around now is that Israel's response is too strong, not proportional to the the attack that happened on uh, October 7th. And uh, the reason why they look at that is they look at the dead numbers of uh, in Gaza, the dead numbers in Israel. You look at 1400 in Israel, not including the the you know the soldiers that are currently uh you know in the since the war started. And then you look at the numbers in Gaza, which is what I don't know, 11,000 at this point, again a number that's presented to us by Hamas, uh by the Gaza Health Ministry which is literally Hamas, uh, and it's some it's a number that you know you can't really trust or you can't trust at all. And the reason why people are saying that it is uh, the response is too strong is just very simple. You look at the numbers, but what people don't get to realize is that Israel is not just responding to past threats; they're responding to future threats. Hamas said again and again, uh, very clearly, that October the seventh is just the beginning. They keep on going to do it again and again and again. So this is not an, a, a response to something that happened and then just you know like we're moving forward. This is a response to something that is going to continue to happen unless. It's completely dismantled unless it's it, unless Hamas is completely nullified um, from from any position of power whatsoever. So you have anger, and then you have sadness, and then you look at all the anti-Semitism that's going on in the world, and many people are becoming fearful. You look at from the college campuses to the intellectual elites and what they're presenting the information. 
and who they are siding with. And then you look at large countries and who they are siding with, and people are getting very fearful. People that are living in certain countries, they realize what's going on with these countries, countries that are moving away from Israel. Israel literally suffered a terror attack and was responding in the most humane way possible. And then you have countries that are, are, are backing out of their, of their relationship with Israel. And that's fearful for the people living in the country. Like, what are you doing? Like, you're siding with the terrorists? There is literally, I, I, I don't know, a time in history where people would side with terrorism. Like, anybody that is have a, a, of a sound peace of mind, anybody that is somewhat, uh, so, somewhat of a level of, of, you know, of intellect would never side with murder, would never side with the barbarism that's going on over here. And yet we see over here the college elite, the countries are siding with them, and this is making people very fearful. So at one point we're sad, at another point we're angry, and then we're fearful. And then, to, you know, when you throw into the wrench where people are screaming at ceasefire, then you have anger, you have frustration, you have confusion, because we all know that ceasefire is not going to help anything. It's going to, anybody that's saying ceasefire is just showing that they have no idea what they're talking about. It's as simple as that. Because if you say ceasefire is just going to cause more deaths in the future. If you know anything about the geopolitical situation in Israel, about the Hamas relationship with Israel, about the Palestinian Authority relationship with Israel, a ceasefire will only mean one one thing, and that is more death in the future. You'll postpone it now. It's like a little kid who has a monster in their closet. And what's their what's their method of protection is let me go under the cover because that's what's going to protect me. So let me take as an ostrich would and dig my head into the sand and that's what's going to protect me. The people that are screaming ceasefire, that's what they're doing. They're covering themselves with a blanket because they said, oh no, no, it's too, it's too, it's too angry right now. It's too blood, too much bloodshed right now. All they're doing is they're going to be any, you just, you just a simple understanding of what's going on. You'll realize that this will happen again and again and again, and then there's only going to be more bloodshed. Meaning that if this happens again, just to understand what's going on, that if this happens again, God forbid happens again, that means that Israel is going to have to retaliate even greater. So now let's say there's tens of thousands of deaths, which again, hard to say because who knows what the real numbers are. You could add another zero to that of what's going to be the next time around because it's just going to get more drastic. So it has to be dealt with right away. It's like someone who has a cancer, God forbid, someone's going through chemotherapy. They, they, if they're like so close to eradicating the, the cancer, they're not going to say, okay, you know what? The patient's having a very difficult time right now. Let's hold it off. Obviously, if the patient is on the verge of death, they're going hold it off. But if the patient has any strength anymore, they're going to plow through it to just to remove the cancer once and for all. And that's what's going on over here. So when someone goes and starts saying ceasefire, you're like, wait a minute. So then you're bringing a whole other range of emotions that you can't even begin to comprehend because you're it's, it's such a mixed range of emotions. Then you look at what the president of the United States, President Biden, he what President Biden is trying to do is trying to make both sides happy. So he is supporting Israel in public and then criticizing Israel in public. He's supporting Israel behind and then he's also criticizing it. Like when you look at it, it's like almost that he's trying to say things that one side wants to hear. And then he goes and he's trying to appease the other side. And now, before I go you know, any further, we are very thankful and grateful for all the help and the support that the United States government and President Biden has given to Israel. But when you try to satisfy both sides of a, of, of a fight, of a, of, a, of a difficult situation, you end up satisfying none. And his, you know, like, like so that's why people from both sides are, are like confused, happy, like they're not sure what to feel in this situation. 
And then to add another range of emotion is when Israel goes and states some sort of fact, whatever the fact is, amount of debt, whatever it is. You know what the, many of the media say? Okay, but how can we trust you? When Hamas says something, they're like, okay, well, Hamas said this. And you have many, many times, uh, in fact, almost every single time, Hamas has been caught in a lie. Like how many times can the boy who cried wolf cry wolf till the world realizes that this guy is a pathological liar? Like you can't trust anything that they're saying. But yet they keep on saying to the point is that Israel proves their information and they keep on asking, oh, prove it to us more. And on the flip side, Hamas is keep on being proved wrong and they're taking that information and they're bringing it to the Israelis and be like, well, Hamas said this. Hamas can say anything. We, we, it came to a point that they have a chazaka, right? They came to the point that we all know where Hamas stands. Hamas is not a truthful negotiator. Hamas is not able, someone that you're able to negotiate with. You can negotiate with barbarism. You can negotiate with the intellectual levels that they're dealing with, the, the anger and the frustration or whatever it is that they're coming from. There is no negotiating with that. There's nothing that can be discussed with that. And yet the frustration go so high when Israel presents their facts and then Hamas presents their information because it's not facts and then the media which is supposed to present unbiased information they're like oh well you're saying this well I have a pathological liar that's been telling me different yeah yeah he said he, he said he doesn't agree with you be like are you like listen to the words that are coming out of your mouth like how does that make any sense whatsoever so this brings this brings extreme amount of of frustration now when you have all these level of emotions when you have these it, it affects everything that you do it affects your day it affects your relationships with your spouse with your children with your work it affects your productivity it affects the way that you are you know your your spiritual growth it affects so many things so that is why it's so important to understand how to deal with these emotions how are we supposed to go and and be able to take the information have that emotion and then present it in a positive and and a uh, uh, beneficial way and then when you take all that and you throw the hostages situation into the into the mix it like throws everybody off so right now <coughs> right now excuse me the uh, the hostage situation is set to start on Friday. It was supposed to start on Thursday. It's been pushed off. Uh, but just a, a brief of information of what, again, this will very likely change by the time it actually comes into fruition. But right now, there is supposed to be a four-day uh, truce. It's not a ceasefire. It's uh, it's it's a, 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 a truce that the Israeli government is going to be able to take about 50 hostages. These are women and children under the age of 19. And in return, there is going to be 150 Palestinian women and teenagers that are in the Israeli prison. They are going to be uh, freed. And this is over a four-day period. So you're talking about 12 or so uh, hostages per day and multiply that by three for the um, for the Palestinian side. The This pause in the war can be extended uh, for, you know, a, a day at a time. And that will be an an increase of 10 hostages per day that Israel is is going to refrain from from attacking. So one of the reasons for that is that Hamas does not have all the hostages. Hamas, you know, as much 
as Hamas is in the news, there's other people at play over here. There is the Islamic Jihad that has a lot of hostages. There's also citizens, what they say is citizens, that have hostages also. So the ceasefire or, or the, the temporary seize that's going on right now, the, is, is tend to, uh, help have Hamas go and find all the other hostages so they can, you know, extend this if it does come to that. Another thing that they threw into the, into the mix is that Israel has to stop its air traffic in the north from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. and stop all air traffic in the south for the entire period. And this is where it's going now. This is all going to be facilitated by the Red Cross, uh, through Egypt and how they're going to move the, uh, the hostages with, with Israeli soldiers. And this is the gist of the hostage situation as, as we know it right now. Now, there is a lot of confused feelings regarding this. And even in, in, in Israel, there was a poll that done, like, how do people, how do the Israelis feel about this? So 52% of the Israelis said that they are in favor of the deal. They, they want the hostage, uh, you know, release and they're willing to give that 150, uh, terrorists, you know, uh, free, free them from the prison. There are 32% of Israelis oppose it and 16% they don't have a clear opinion on, on the matter. So when we look at it and we're taking in this information, like, at one side, of course, we want the hostages back. But at this other side, they're freeing a triple amount of terrorists. They're, and, and it's not like a tit for tat situation. They are giving us innocent civilians and we are giving them convicted felons. It's not a fair trade, not in quantity nor quality. So at the end of the day, we are saving 50 lives. But the question that comes up, but at what cost? And the reason why this question is coming up, because the last time they did they did a hostage swap is for Gilad Shalit, the, the soldier, where they freed 1,027 terrorists. One of them was Yechia Sinwar. He was the one, the mastermind behind this October 7th massacre, uh, who's still in hiding like a cockroach in the Gaza tunnel somewhere. This and so you think about it, okay, so we, we saved, in hindsight, we saved one, but, but at the same point in time, we killed who knows how many because of that. Again, I'm not going to get into the logic matters, uh, you know, of the situation because it is very interesting, but rather we do look at what is going on right now. So, so technically there is a, a say that this should be done, but there's a lot to speak about from a halakhic perspective on the hostage, uh, negotiations and how much we should or should not, uh, be, uh, f- uh flexible in. But in any case, this is, it, it looks like it's happening. So now, how are people feeling about it? People are, are happy. People are confused. People are frustrated. People are angry. People are like, wait, that's not fair. Like, like there's so many emotions that are just, you know, overflowing in each and every single person. And to take that matter and put it on top of the, the international community on where the international community is throwing words of genocide and human rights violation, but they're throwing it at the wrong side. They're literally, the, the, it was, I, I can't say I was shocked because at this point, I don't know how much is it like, I'm not shocked anymore. I, I, that's very unfortunate, but there is a magazine called The Nation. The Nation is a very left-wing uh, magazine. The peaceful march on Israel that was done, uh, you know, on Tuesday, that not this Tuesday, previous, they call it a hate rally. They call it a celebration of war crimes. This was by far the most, the largest and the most peaceful march of the entire of of any rally any march since the beginning of this of this war and they call it a hate rally and th- this is the this is how the 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 world is looking at it. it like so then you're up to frustration again and then you know like like when you look at it to 
to make, to make matters upon him, to add emotion upon emotion, you look at what's going on in the Shifa hospital. So there is, it's, it's, at this point, it's proven already that by, without a doubt, that Hamas used the hospital for a uh, base of terror, for their base of operations, and many, if not every organization that was in Gaza, non-for-profit, human rights organization, knew about this. They knew about the human rights violation. That's including the United Nations. That's including Doctors Without Borders. That's including the Red Cross. That's including all the journalists. They all knew. And this is a outright violation of the 1949 Geneva Convention, the the uh, where you're not allowed to use a hospital for a military activity. And there was an addition to that, uh, uh, to that, to that protocol. And that is that under no circumstances can a medical unit be used in attempt to shield military objectives objectives from attack, which is also what they have been doing. This is a direct human rights violation, very obviously stated. And you have all all of all of the 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 human rights you know activists that were in Gaza they knew about this and this is not something that just like oh just came about now and everybody found out about it this is back in 2007 when Hamas came into power there was a doctor that came out in Shiva hospital and said the medical staff is suffering from fear and terror why? Because in 2007, we saw in every corner of the hospital a Hamas fighter. That was in 2007. In 2007, a human rights watch reported that Hamas not only is in the hospital, but they held, they hold executions in the hospital. This is a hospital, Bet Hanun, not, not in the Shifa hospital. Uh, you know, like in 2008, New York Times reported Hamas murdered six suspects within a period of 24 hours. Uh, they, the, the, they even say that in the x-ray department, they use that as a, in the hospital, they use that as a prison and interrogation room, uh, that this is written by the Amnesty International in 2015, that they interrogated and tortured people in the hospital. So, very, very common knowledge. Yet, what happens? What do you see when Israel is going and saying, "Oh, Hamas is using the um, the hospital for military activity"? Everyone's like, "Can you prove it? Can you like, is it what well, you found like one tunnel? Like that's what you find?" And the more they, they they keep on finding more and more. But like, why does Israel have this? Is already proven. This is like Hamas uses ambulances to go through its for its oper- operation. This is something that's very, very obvious. That's proven. That's spoken about before, and yet the international community is like, "Well, can you prove it?" Because Hamas said that they're not using it. Oh, the the pathological liars, you know, the the mass murderers. They're the ones that are telling you in the information, and you're sitting there like a the little tatlab, be like, "Yeah, you know, like, you know, what else? What what else can you tell us?" And and you read this, and the emotions are just all over the place. The emotions are all over the place. And then finally, when you think that, okay, anti-Semitism, finally it's being addressed, and finally people are speaking out, out about it, Harvard University came out, uh, the president came out, you know, condemning anti-Semitism on campus. You know what the response was to that? A hundred professors. Let me repeat that. It wasn't a hundred students. It was a hundred professors in Harvard University. They came out and they penned a letter condemning the university president for her recent statements of opposing anti-Semitism on campus. What was their reason for condemning it? Because it infringes of, on freedom of speech. 
This is the same people that scream and yell, we have to be very careful not to have, uh, you know, uh, uh, to protect people's pronouns and to protect people's, uh, you know, what they identify as. And we have, uh, like, we can't have any aspect of, of, of like hate on campus because we have to be all inclusive. This is people that are, that, that are pushing nonstop on how we have to accept everybody. Oh, but when it comes to murder of Jews, no, that's okay. And if, oh, wait, well, you're, you're not going to allow freedom of speech. What happened to freedom of speech when someone doesn't want to, you know, call a man a, a woman or a woman? A, like, where is, like, how do you balance that? Where's the flip-flopping that, that that's going on over here? And to, to, to add insult to this, the professors, they called on this, this president of Harvard, uh, that, that, you know what you should do is you should establish an advisory group on Islamophobia and anti-Arab racism. Like, that's what you should do. Like, wait. So anti-Semitism, that you can do, but Islamophobia, that's what we should focus on over here. And there, there was a history professor by the name of Kristen Weld in, in Harvard that said that, you know, it seems like the president of Harvard is showing favoritism to one side of the conflict. I'm like, wait, hold on. You know, like, I'm sorry. Like, let's back favoritism to one. If you look at all the colleges, the professors, all these Ivy Leagues that came out, there was a very one obvious favoritism that they were going for, and that was not Israel's side. And you look at how, like, how hypocritical can people be? Like, so, so it makes you, at this point, it, the emotion is like, there is no hope. Like, you know, like, like, where can, like, where can we go at this, from, you know, from here? There's literally no hope. So, we have this wide range of emotions. We, we have this, this difficulty of coping it. And this is something that anybody that's being involved in the news is dealing with it on a day-to-day basis. They're dealing with all these, these wide range of emotions. And then they have to go through their day-to-day life with, whether it's work, whether it's learning, whether it's raising kids, relationships. There's so many things that this affect. Sometimes it affects it positively, which is awesome. It's amazing. But sometimes it affects it negatively. And we have to realize how are we, are, are, are supposed to internalize, uh, you know, uh, this information. So I would like to share with you something. Could take, come with me a little bit of a, of a, of a Parsha journey. Um, something from Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky. And this is, uh, this is Rabbi Sachafran brings it down uh, based off Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky. So when, we look at the Avos, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. We know that they kept, based on the Rishonim, they kept the Torah at, when they were in Eretz Yisrael. Meaning the Torah wasn't given yet, but they kept the laws of the Torah in Eretz Yisrael. The Ramban, Nachmanides, asks a question. Wait a minute. Yaakov married two sisters. And we know through the Torah, halachically, you're not allowed to marry two sisters. So the famous answer that the Ramban Nachmanani gives that this is where we base off the, the, the idea that the, um, the Avos, they kept the Torah only in Eretz Yisrael. And that's why when, when uh, Yaakov married two sisters, it was only outside of Eretz Yisrael, but inside of Eretz Yisrael, he wasn't married to, uh, to two sisters. It comes Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky and he says, you're not explaining this correctly. That's not the correct interpretation of this Ramban. And listen to this fascinating idea of what Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky explains. He says, you know, 
what the question the question that came was how could Yaakov uh, marry two sisters? It, it's never a question to begin with. The reason for that is is because the reason why Yaakov married two sisters is because Yaakov came over to Rachel and he made a commitment to her and he says, "I am going to marry you." Love and went came and switched, you know, and 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 gave and gave uh, um, gave uh, Rachel to gave Leah before Rachel. And, uh, you know, like, so, so it threw a, threw a wrench in it. But the reason, explains Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, that Yaakov married two sisters is because Yaakov gave a commitment that he is going to marry Rachel. And he is going to fulfill that commitment. He gave a word. Oh, but you want to say that the others kept the laws of the Torah? That's a chumrah. That's a stringency. That, that's, that's a, that's, that's an optional, uh, uh, piety that was done on the others part. But if you have a stringency, and then it that contradicts my word. My word takes precedence, especially if it's going to affect someone else. So there was no justification to allow Rachel to suffer because of my stringency of keeping the Torah. So explains Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, the reason why ya- why Yaakov married two sisters is because for the latter one, he gave a commitment and he is going to follow through the commitment. So then he goes and explains the Rambam. So what does the Rambam mean? The, the Rambam mean that the, the others that are keeping Torah and Leichot Saris. So the, the Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky explains that when he's really, that he's really answering a different question. When you have a righteous person, God protects righteous people, especially in spiritual, in spirituality. Akadish Baruch Hu makes sure that he will not bring a takala, a misfortune on the act of the righteous. And he explains as follows. That let's say you have a righteous person, a tzaddik, that goes into a restaurant. And this, he goes into the restaurant, he orders a meal. And later it is found out that this restaurant was serving meat that was not kosher. Kosher or not kosher? It must be that the righteous person that went in to buy a piece of meat from this restaurant, he had one of the kosher meats. Why? Because in heaven they will never allow it that a righteous person will, will, will sin like this. That, that a righteous, you have a tzaddik, they will never allow it that a tzaddik will have tray for food, impure food, not kosher food go and enter his, uh, his mouth. So the Ramban is asking like this. This is the Ramban is asking, explains Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky. How did God let this happen to Yaakov? How did God let this happen that Yaakov will be stuck with marrying two sisters if the Torah says that you're not allowed to marry two sisters? Why? Because God would not allow a, a something bad, something negative, something spiritually negative to happen to a righteous person. Who is more righteous than Yaakov Avinu? Yaakov was very righteous. So how is it possible, explains Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, that God allowed that Yaakov would be forced to marry two people because he gave his word to one? So to this, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, is what the Ramban is answering. The Ramban is answering that where is this a forbidden thing? Where is this an Israel? That's only in Israel, in Eretz Israel. But outside of Israel, this is not forbidden. And hence, when it happened that Yaakov had to marry two sisters, it wasn't forbidden where he was because he wasn't in Israel. And that's how the Ramban answers. But what's the takeaway? What's the takeaway? If you haven't followed me until now, the takeaway is that Yaakov Vinu was extremely honest. And if he gave a word, he's going to follow through with it no matter what. And this this is what explains Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky. And this Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky was also extremely truthful in everything that he did. And his farm is actually written, Emes Yaakov, the truth of Yaakov. The, uh, and there's two stories that are brought down that Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky lived into his 90s, lived a ripe old age. And towards the end of his life, he started putting on Rabbeinu Tam's tefillin. Rabbeinu Tam, most people, they put on Rashi's tefillin. And the difference between Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam's tefillin is just that there are, in the tefillin, there are certain parashim 
parashiyos. So certain sections of the Torah that are written. And the difference is that in Rabbeinu Tam's Tefillin versus Rashi's Tefillin, it's placed in different order. That's a different. So at the end of his life, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky started putting on Rabbeinu Tam's Tefillin. Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky was a Litvak. He was a Lithuanian Jew. He was born in Lita. He was raised in Lita. He studied in Slabotka Yeshiva. The the custom to put on Rabbeinu Tam's Tefillin is not a custom amongst the Ashkenazi Jews. It's more of a custom amongst the Hasidic Jewry. So the question that is asked is why is it if you have Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky that was a Litvak, he was from, a, you know, he was, he was not Hasidish. Why is it that he started at the end of his life putting on Rabbi Tam Tfilin? And the reason for that is because many, many, many years prior to that, you're talking about over 50 years prior to that, prior to when he started putting on Tfilin, someone approached him and they said, you know, Rabbi, why aren't you wearing Rabbi Tam Tfilin. And Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky responded, he says, what do you mean? I'm a Litvak, I, you know, and we don't wear Rabbi Tam's Tfilin. So this person responded, yeah, but the Chafetz Chaim was also a Litvak. And at the end of his life, he wore Rabbi Tam's Tfilin. So Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky responded, when I get to the age of the Chafetz Chaim, when he put on Tfilin, I'll also put on Rabbi Tam's Tfilin. And that's what he said 50 years prior to that. Fast forward 50 years later, he came to the, he lived to, you know, to an older, to an old age. He came to the age of when the Chavetz Chaim put on that film. So he said, okay, I gave my word 50 years ago. I have to live up to that. And that's why, that's why Rabbi Yaakov Kavinetsky started putting on, uh, Rabbi Nutam's film. Why? Because he kept something that he said 50 years prior. Some people can keep what they say within the same sentence. This is what a gadol is. This is what a tzaddik is. He knows that if he, a word means something. You give someone your word, you follow through with it. And there was another story of Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky. And that is that he did not eat gebraks. Gebraks is when you have on Pesach, on Passover, when you have matzah products that came into contact with liquid on Pesach. The Hasidish Minag is that you don't eat Gibraks. The, Lit, the, the, the Litvish Minag is that you do eat Gibraks. But Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, who was a Litvak, who was not Hasidic, he ate, he did not eat Gibraks. And what was the reason for that? His family ate Gibraks. He let his family eat Gibraks. Why didn't he eat it? And this goes back to when he was, uh, learning in Yeshiva in Slabotka. And when he was learning in Yeshiva in Slabotka, as everybody would be when they were learning in, in that time, is that there was no dining room. Everybody would go to a particular person's house and that's where they would eat their uh, their meals, you know, either every day or every other day, uh, just to, to be able to survive and continue learning. So one time he was invited to go to a person's house and for whatever reason he wasn't satisfied with the level of kashras the, the, that this house had. So it was Pesach, and back then everybody was eating gebraks because that's what they were. And uh, he, he, when he was invited to this family, he said, "I'm sorry, I can't come." And they were, they're like, "Why can't you come?" Now he didn't want to insult them and say, "Well, I don't trust your level of kashas." So he said, "Oh, I, I don't eat gebraks, and I know you guys eat gebraks." And they were like, "Oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Like we do eat gebraks." So like, okay, no problem. So he was able to go and eat somewhere else. But since he said that he doesn't eat gebraks, for the rest of his life, he did not eat gebraks. That was his last level of honesty. That was his level of what he kept to his word. So now when you look, that was your Yaakov Kamenetsky, who lived in the previous generation. When you look at Yaakov Avinu, Yaakov Avinu is known as an Ish Emes. He was, he kept his word. So then we have to ask a question that was, we could ask it on the, on the previous, on previous partial, last week's partial, is that when Yaakov went over to his father Yitzchak and he pretended to be Esav 
And he says, I am ace of your firstborn. How could this be? How could this be? You have someone, it's a question that many people ask. Many people have a very hard time with this question. Be like, how could it be? How could it be that I am, uh, you know, like, like you talking about the biggest ish emes, known that the, the highest level of, of truthfulness was Yaakov Avinu. How is it possible that he says, I am ace of your firstborn? So Rashi answers and says, no, the way that you're supposed to read it is Anohi Kama. I, comma, Asaph, he is your firstborn. That's how you go. And some people are satisfied with this answer. Some people are not. But Rashi in Makos, page, in Mesachtas Makos, in page 24, tells us something fascinating, a big tradition, that what was going on over here? Like, what, what, why was Yaakov going and pretending to be Asaph? He's an Isha MS, and he came and he went over to Yitzhak and he pretended to be to get the brachos. So Rashi goes and explains a chiddush. And he says that he did not want to lie to his father. He's, after all, he's an Ishamas. He's a, he's an honest person. He's not going to lie. But his mother forced him. His mother Rivka forced him. And you know what she said? This is not based on me. This is based on what Akadish Baruch wants. And he, and, and she tells him a nevoah. She tells him a prophecy. He says, God wants you to do this. She delivered a prophetic message. And, you know, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky says, you know, could be this is the only way that, that, the only reason that Yaakov would do it. Otherwise, who knows if he, if he would have done it. But once he hears that there's a prophetic, that, that God told, said to do this, he has no choice. He has to do it. But the question that we have to ask is that why? Why did God make it? Why did HaKadosh Baruch Hu make it that Yaakov is going to get the blessing through this deceiving faction? He is known as Emes. Why is he supposed to go and get the blessings even though he deserved it, even though he earned it, even though he bought it, he bought the Bukhara from Esau. From all legal perspective, he deserves it, he earns it, and it goes to him. But why did it have to be in such a deceiving way? Why couldn't it be, God could have created it in a way that's very honest and very straightforward and very, you know, the way that it which would be for Yaakov, you know. So explains Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky something fascinating. That the each of the Avos are known to have a particular attribute. They're known to have something that is uh, 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 something that they represent. And for example, so we know that Avram Avinu, he represents chesed, uh, kindness. And then when you look at the tests that God gave Avram Avinu, it looks like, wait a minute, it's the opposite of chesed. The, you know, the first test, the lech lecha, that God tells Avram Avinu, you have to leave your father's house. Which man of chesed, of, of kindness, would leave his father. Like, why did God give Avram Avinu this test? The test of leaving your father. Avram Avinu is known as chesed begins at home. Why is he leaving his father? And not only that, God gave another, Akadish Baruch gave another test of what? Sending Hagar, his wife, away. This is a man of kindness. This is a man who loves everyone. This is a man, why would he go and say, send his wife, Hagar, away? And not only that, you, t- you talk about the highest level of kindness. He, he he was set to slaughter his own son Yitzchak. He was the one that was preaching to everyone: "Do not slaughter. God does not want you to slaughter your children to to your to your idols." And he was convincing them. He says, "This is not what God wants. God is a loving God, a wanting God, and wants everybody to live." And now the test was: now you're going to sacrifice your son to me. This is not a kindness. So the question says, Rabbi Yaakov Gnetzky, why is it that Yaak that that Avram Avinu was tested? And the things that he was going directly against, what he represented, what he worked so hard, his MO was kindness. Why was he tested on the opposite of kindness?
So explains Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky something so fascinating, beautiful. He said, you know what God was telling Avraham Avinu? The Rabbani Shalom was telling Avraham Avinu. says, if you really love me, if you really fear me, that I want you to engage in the activities that is the most difficult for you. You know what's more important to Avram Avinu than being a Baal Chesed? You know what's more important to Avram Avinu from being kindness? That's listening to the word of God. You know what makes it a test? Because it was the most difficult thing for Avram Avinu. That's what gives value to the test. We see the same thing that happened with Yitzchak. In Yitzchak, in Shabbos chapter 89, page, I'm sorry, 89b, the the Gemara says something very interesting. In the future, God is going to go to Avram Avinu, and He's going to tell them, "Your children sinned against me." <coughs> so Avram Avinu is going to respond, "They sinned against you. Let them be annihilated. Let them be destroyed, obliterated for the sanctity of Your name." So Hashem says, "Okay." He goes over to Yaakov Avinu. He says, "Your children had sinned against me." You know what Yaakov Avinu responded? Yeah. Let them be obliterated for sanctifying your name, for the sanctity of your name. So, Hakadosh Baruch Hu is going to go to Yitzchak. Yitzchak is known as Din. Yitzchak is going to know is known as just, justice. And God goes over to Yitzchak and he says, "Your children have sinned against me." You know what Yitzchak responds? Wait, my children? They're your children too. You know, when you have, you know, you, a husband comes home, be like, you know, and a wife goes and be like, you know what your children did? Cause you know, that's not going to be something good. Yeah. It's not going to be like, well, you're a child. Yeah, just like you. So genius. They got a hundred on the score and then they went and they, uh, you know, helped, you know, chesed for, for who knows how many families. No. If you're coming home and you get the response from your, from your spouse, oh, you know what your children did? And that's, that's going to come out nice. That's not going to come out good. So, HaKadosh Baruch goes over to Yitzhak Avinu and he says, you know what you children did? And Yitzhak Avinu stops. He says, wait a minute, my children, they're your children as well. And then HaKadosh Baruch says, your children sinned against me. So Yitzhak starts negotiating. Yitzhak, the man of din, the man of justice. He goes and says, okay, well, what's a human lifespan of a human being? 70 years? Okay. So you have to take away the first 20 because they, they, you don't get punished for the first 20 years. And you're left with 50 years. Now you have to take all away half of that 50 years because half of that is nights and people are sleeping and they're not able to sin. So you're left with 25 years left. But you have to take away, you have to slash another 12 and a half. Why? Because they're spent in praying and eating or going to the bathroom. So you're left with 12 and a half years of potential sin left. <coughs> so Yitzhak goes and he says, if you take, if you shoulder all the sin, fine. If not, let's split it. Half on me and half on you. I'll take half the sin, you'll take half the sin. But this is a big question. Wait a minute. Who is saying this? This is Yitzchak is saying. Yitzchak is known as justice. It's Pachad Yitzchak, the fearful Yitzchak who is always afraid of sin and its punishment. The straight and arrow just, everything was just for Din. This is what, how is Yitzchak responding to this? And the answer is, says Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, this was Yitzchak's Akeda. This was Yitzchak's test. You know why? Because everything that he represented was justice, was straight. You know what the test is? The test is, is that when it's something that's your MO, it's something that you represent, and now you have to go against it. 
That is, you're not going to go by the book. I am not going to say that they are going to be accountable. That is the test. That is the test that Avram Avinu had, and that is the test that Yitzhak Avinu will have. And now we look at Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov Avinu, it says in Micha, chapter 7, verse 20, Titan Emes Yaakov. Yaakov is known as Emes. Yaakov is known as truth. So it went against every grain of, of, of Yaakov Avinu's, uh, you know, uh, uh, body, be like, wait a minute, I have to be untruthful to my father? And Rivka, his mother, said yes, because this is what God said. Uh, you know, like, I'm not responding. This is what HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, you, this is the way that you have to do it. And this was the test. Do I do everything that I've worked on until now? This is my MO. This is everything that I focused on. Or do I go and do I listen to God? And just like Avram with Chesed, and just like Yitzhak with Din, Yaakov had that test with, with Emes. And that was the test of Yaakov Vinu. And explains the Vilna Gaon and Sefer Yonah, that most of us are Gilgulim. We have been to this world before. And we came back to fix something. We came back to do something better. This was not a prize that we're here again in this world. We are here to fix something. What are we supposed to fix? The most difficult thing for you, that's what you need to fix. Just like the most difficult thing was a test for Avram. The most difficult thing was a test for Yitzhak. The most difficult thing was a test for Avram. The most difficult thing for you is a test for you. That is what you are here. That is why you are placed on this world for Explains Ramalach Bidaman. The Chafetz Chaim, he quotes the Chafetz Chaim, that when you perform a mitzvah that is with a challenge, it's worth so much more than a mitzvah without a challenge. And this is based off the, the Mishnah, the Mishnah in Avaz Rab Nasan, that a single mitzvah that's hard to perform is greater than 100 mitzvahs that are performed without difficulty. Meaning the great, the more difficult something is for you, the greater the value, the greater the worth it is. The Balatanya had a grandson by the name of Reb Nachum, and he bought a very, very expensive jacket. There was like fur around the collar, and he bought it you know, at the time that he got married. The Balatanya, the Babich Rebbe did not like the style. Uh, you know, it wasn't, I guess it wasn't the way that Jews dressed at the time. So he told his grandson, you know, I don't want you to wear this jacket. His grandson said, you know, like, I'm sorry, I, I can't stop wearing it. So the Balatanya said, I'll buy you another jacket. So his grandson said, you know, like, no go. Sorry, I'm sorry, I, I can't. So the Balatanya says, I, I will give you money. I'll pay you for it. I'll pay you more for it. The grandson said, you know, I'm sorry, I, I can't. I can't I can't part with this coat. So the Balatanya said, I'll learn with you. Which, by the way, if we just pause the story right there, we can see the level that his grandson was on. Meaning that you start off negotiating table, you start off low, and you work your way up. Right? So how did it start off? I'll buy you another jacket. No can do. I'll give you money. No can do. If he said, I'm going to now learn with you, that means that that is worth more than the money and buying a new jacket. And you know what the grandson said? I'm sorry, I cannot do it. So then the Balatanya replied. He says, if you take off the coat... You will be with me in Gan Eden. And that, the grandson said, I'll agree to that. And he, re- and he accepted the offer and he took off his coat. And his, the students of the Balatanya, after the grandson left, they went over to the Balatanya and says, how could you promise him that? How could you promise him? Like, how do you know? How could you promise him that? And the Balatanya responded, he said, because I saw how difficult it was for him to give up that coat. 
I saw how difficult it was for him to stop wearing it. And I realized that the greater the test, the greater the reward. So yes, if he is able to overcome it, he will sit with me in Gan Eden. And that is something that we have to really internalize. The greater the test that we have, the greater the reward that we will reap from it. And we see something very interesting. That when Rivka, when she was pregnant in last week's parsha, when she passed by the yeshivas, when she passed by the doorways of Torah, what happened? Yaakov struggled to come out. When she passed by places of Avodah Zarah, places of idolatry, Esav struggled to come out, meaning that they were predisposed to one way or another. Esav was, was, was more pushing towards idolatry, and Yaakov was pushing more towards spirituality. Explains the Yismach Moshe. Something fascinating. Something like a question that you, you, may, you maybe had your whole life and you didn't get an answer until now. Why is it that Yitzchak Avinu wanted to give the blessings to Esav? Like, Yitzchak was not a silly, dumb person. He knew who Esav was. He knew what Esav was. So why is it he should have been like, Yaakov is the one that deserves a blessing. Yaakov is the one that is represents the spirituality, and that is what who I should give the blessing to. Why did Yitzchak even want to give the blessings to Esav to begin with? And the answer is based off what we were just discussing. That Yitzhak Avinu realized that who has greater spiritual potential? Esav, he was pushing to go into idolatry. Yaakov was pushing towards spirituality. Who is going to be valued more when they do something spiritual? The answer is Esav, for sure Esav, because it's more difficult for him. He was predisposed, he was pushing, he was more motivated to do evil. And if he overcomes that and he does, and he goes to the spiritual, his value of, of spirituality is going to be worth much more than Yaakov Avinu. He has greater potential because of his difficulty. And that's why Esav, Yitzhak wanted to give the blessings to Esav. But then all of a sudden, when Yaakov Avinu comes, and Yaakov starts saying, you know, like, I am Esav, your, your, your firstborn. Yitzhak is, what is his response? The, 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 the voice sounds like Yaakov, but the hand feels like Esav, meaning that Yitzhak knew that it, this was Yaakov Avinu. But what was the Chiddush? The Chiddush was that, wait a minute, if Yaakov is coming and taking these, this blessing, that means that he is, you know, like there, there is room for improvement on Yaakov Avinu. The Yaakov Avinu has a reason to deserve these blessings. That when Yaakov Avinu goes and does something spiritual, it's still going to be worth a very high level because we could see that he's doing it in a deceptive manner. So Yaakov, so Yitzhak says, oh, I see now, explains the Yitzhak Moshe, that Yaakov Avinu has potential, just like Esau Avinu has potential. Because beforehand, Yitzhak said, well, Yaakov is perfect, Esau is lacking, so I have to give the brachas for Esau, yeah, that's going to be worth a lot more. But now he sees that Yaakov is also lacking, now Yaakov is going to be able to have value those, uh, those blessings. So we see over here that our deficiencies, 
our difficulties, our struggles, that's what gives us the edge. That's what gives us the ability to grow. The fact that you have hard time is the greatest blessing that you can ever have. Again, we don't ask for hard times and we don't want the hard times. But if God gives you a hard time, you know that that difficulty, you have the greatest opportunity for growth. Asaph had greater opportunity, greater potential than Yaakov, you know. So when we look at where we're standing today, and we look at all the emotionally charged situations that we're in, this is a test on how are we going to respond. When emotions are high, intellect is low. It is very hard to think intellectually when your emotions are running high. If someone has anger issues, it is very, very difficult to go and say, oh, when you get angry, now work on yourself. What are you supposed to work on yourself? You're supposed to work on yourself before you get angry and you're preparing yourself for that. <coughs> Meaning that if you know a test is coming, if you can prepare for the test, you have a more of a chance of success. And I would like to share with you a story that I mentioned before uh, years ago. There was an Israeli soldier and this is was a Israeli soldier. He was a genius of a guy. Like he was a top of his class. And when he uh, was, you know, when he was drafted and he got into his his particular brigade, he, he was a top in that also. And you know, he decided he wanted to learn, you know, Arabic. He learned it fluently in under a year. You know, like he was a genius. And you know, and, and he he aced. Every single, in the physical aspect, in the intellectual aspect, in the emotional aspect, in all areas he aced it. And the army saw this. And the army noticed him. And he started going very, very high in the ranks. And then he started hearing rumors. You know, there's a certain uh, um, department, and I'm using air quotes, that doesn't exist. The most elite of elite. The most, the most sophisticated, most advanced, the, 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 the top of the top of where they use them for missions that the, the, is the IDF, the Mossad, the Shinbat, they use these people for things that, you know, all mission impossibles. They need the, the, the top of the top. And this, this guy was, he was, he was going through the ranks and he was like, you know, like, I gotta find out about this. And he starts inquiring, and every general that he asks, every person he meets will be like, no, sorry, I never heard about it. And he's like, you know, I've heard rumors enough, I know that it exists. And he keeps on telling them, I need to be in this, in this unit, I need to be in this unit, I need to, and he keeps on trying to push himself in, but nothing is happening for like two, three years, and he's, he's going up higher, higher, higher in ranks in the army. One day he set out on a mission, in the mission in, in, in the enemy's territory, and he's solo. He's by himself. And he's doing what he needs to do. And then all of a sudden he gets ambushed. It's as if they knew that he was coming. And they quickly, you know, they, they, they kidnap him and they bring him into their, you know, the cell underground, into their tunnel. And they start, uh, they start, you know, negotiating. They're speaking to him in Arabic and, you know, and they're, they're asking him all these questions and he, he's trained for this, you know, like, so he refuses to, you know, to answer. And then they start the torture. And they start torturing him. Oh my gosh. Like he, they, they do all the most brutal thing that he ever heard and more. And he's, he's about to crack. He's about to like break and he's about to just like give them the, all the information. And as he's about to break, he's sitting there. He's bruised up. He's bloody. His face is barely able to see out of his eye. And he's sitting slunched over, tied onto a chair. And he looks down. And he notices something. 
and he notices that the person interrogating him and beating him is wearing an interesting style boots. And he looks a little bit closer and he realizes these are Israel, you know, like Israeli army boots. And he starts looking around and he notices that they're all wearing this, these types of boots. And all of a sudden it hits him. From all the rumors and all the digging that he has been going through, he heard that the, this unit that, again, air quotes, doesn't exist, they are, they, th- these people, they know all the secrets of the army. They know all the secrets of Israel. They, they, they're so connected on so many levels that they have to be sure that if somebody, God forbid, they, they get kidnapped, they would rather die than give up the secrets of the, you know, of the country. So they, they, you know, like, one of the things that came out is that they kind of, you know, or any potential candidate, they torture, they, you know, they, they really do unspeakable things to make sure that this is a someone that's worthy to be on this unit. And the second that he saw the shoes and the second that that clicked in his mind, he's like, wait a minute, this is a test. And instantly he became so strong that they started beating him, but he knew that they're beating him, but this is, this is, they're his brothers. They're testing him. The second that he knew it was a test, his whole mindset changed they started beating him and he started laughing at them and he's like this is all you got you know bring it on they knew that they weren't going to go over they knew he knew that they weren't going to go and kill him so he was the most macho man possible he was like this is my opportunity so they're punching him and he's like i will never give up my country he's like and and i'm like that you call that a punch like you should come to this really i'll show you what a punch is he's like come on give it to me more like oh like let me see what you really mean and he's taunting them and they're beating him and he's taunting that and they realize that this guy he is not breaking. And when finally after that they, 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 they felt that they went enough, all of a sudden the Israeli commanders came in and they said, oh, this is just a test. And he was like, oh, really? Oh, I didn't know. You know, like, uh, and he says, welcome to this uh, unit that doesn't exist. And soon you're not uh, officially going to legally exist and so on and so forth. The rest is history. So what is the lesson that we learn from this? The lesson is, is that things in life are very difficult. Things in life are very hard. At day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year. Whether it's our relationships, whether it's our own personality, whether it's our own issues, whether it's our work, whether it's our children, whether it's anything in between, it's, di- we're diff- we're in a difficult situation. But you want to know what makes a job easier to handle? You want to know what makes a test easier to handle when you know it's a test. If you know that, wait a minute, Akadosh Baruch Hu is testing you because you're about to get a big promotion. And before any promotion, God tests you. So if you realize that this is a test, you start laughing and be like, this? Okay, I got this. No problem. I'll, you could take it on with so much easiness, so much without any difficulty. When the difficulty was a, what, at, at like 99%, when you realize this is a test and I could overcome it, all of a sudden that 99, then one nine, it drops like a 9% difficulty. It drops so much. So we have to realize that on a day-to-day, we're constantly being tested. You read an article and you get angry. This is a test from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It's a test of Emuna. You're feeling frustrated. You're feeling sad. You're feeling confused. This is a test of Emuna. How do you respond? Do you realize that God is in control? 
Or do you think, no, the Israeli army is in control and they're doing something wrong, they shouldn't be doing it. The United States should be doing this. The United Nations is a piece of garbage, it's not worth the paper that they write their name on, which is true, by the way, but nonetheless, you get so angry. Doctors Without Borders, what good are they when they support terrorism and they don't mention any human rights violation? What good is the Red Cross when they know all the disasters that's happening in Gaza and they don't mention anything? What good are journalists that are biased and they only care about their own agenda? And you can get frustrated, you can get angry, you can get sad, you can get confused, you can get frustrated, you can get any emotion. But once you look at it from a different angle, you start realizing, wait a minute, this is a test. This is from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. This is from God. Am I going to get angry? Am I gonna, what is going to be my response? And this is not something that you can utilize just for the the, 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 the roller coaster of emotions that we're going through. But you could utilize this in your day-to-day activities, whether it's with your spouse, with your children, with your boss, with your learning, with yourself, with God, with anything in between. When you realize that when you approach a difficulty and when you encounter a difficulty... This is HaKadosh Baruch who's saying, I am testing you. And if you know it's a test, you'll be like, okay, wait a minute. Then I am just not going to get angry. Like, let me just take, it's a test. I am not going to get angry. I have the ability to overcome it. I am not going to get frustrated. I have the ability to overcome it. Because it all boils down to one factor, and that is the 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 important understanding that HaKadosh Baruch Hu controls everything. HaKadosh Baruch Hu controls every single thing that happens in your life, macro and micro. Everything from what's happening to Israel to the wrong shirt that you put on that day, to the spill of the coffee, or to the freeing of 300 Palestinian terrorists. Everything is from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So when we look at it, anxiousness, anxiety, depression, sadness, all these things go out the window. Yeah, it's difficult. Yeah, maybe I don't agree. Yeah, I probably know better than the entire Israeli government. Yeah, I probably know better than everyone. But at the end of the day, that's not the correct response. The correct response is like, wait a minute, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is testing me. What am I supposed to do? Oh, yeah, maybe I say to Helen. Maybe I improve. Maybe I learn a little bit more. Maybe I'll dress more modestly. Maybe I'll treat my spouse a little bit better. Maybe I'll treat my children a little bit better. The list goes on and on, and you each know what we you have to work on. We all know what we have to work on. So instead of going and getting frustrated, realizing that it is a test, and we this is the difficult part. We don't think like, hey, wait a minute, I'm reading an article. Like, how is that going? Yeah, no, no, that's a test. Like that article is written in a certain way that's going to trigger you. How are you going to respond to that? You're going to be frustrated. You're going to angry. You're not going to be able to fall asleep. You're going to get anxiety. You're going to get anxiousness. Or you're going to be like, no, wait a minute. This is from Hashem. This too is a test. And when we start realizing that, we can start controlling the roller coaster of emotions that we've been dealing since with October 7th. And many of us and most of us before that and after that. And this is the important, important lesson, the important takeaway that the next time that you're presented with a situation, whether it is an emotional, a physical, whatever it is, you have to stop for a second. You have to realize this is a test. And if it's difficult, then you know the value of that test. Then you know the worth of that test. Because Yaakov, Yitzhak, they were all tested on the most difficult aspects of it. Because that's where growth begins. When it gets difficult, that's when you grow. So the next time, which again, 
and the day that we're living, it's going to be within the ne- next few hours. You are going to be tested. Take this lesson, stop, realize that it's a test, and then you would be able to overcome it. We'll say capital to Helen, as we always do, and then we'll open up to questions. We'll say capital Koflamet uh, chapter 130. And again, if you're listening to this, say it along. <laughs> Don't just be like, okay, you got to the Tehillim part. Let me stop. Well, if you do stop it from now, at least say one chapter of Tehillim for the Israeli soldiers, for the, for the, 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 our, the entire Jewish nation. We, we can all use an extra capital Tehillim. Shir Hamalais. Mimamakim Karasi Khadinoi. Adainai shem abekoili tieno azneh hakashu vais le koltahanunai. Him avainai stishmaya adainai mi amoid. Ki imcha aslicholiman tivore. Ki visi adainai kifs on afshi vilidvarai hai kholti. Nafshi la adainai mi shaymim la baker shaymim la baker. Yachel Yisrael el Adonai ki Adonai yachesed v'harbei moifedus v'hu yiftas Yisrael mikol avoynei sov achenu kol beis Yisrael hanesunim batzara uvashivya ha'oymdim bein bayom uvein bayabasha hamakam yirachem aleim v'yitzia mitzara lirvacha umafela leira umishibud legeula hashta ba'gala bezman kariv v'namar amen. And may, by the time this next class comes up, may we have all of the hostages freed. And it merits Hashem that the entire Hamas infrastructure, Islamic Jihad and Hezbollah, should be six feet under. <laughs> okay, we'll open up to uh, questions. Okay, uh, there, there was something that came up regarding uh, Thanksgiving that it's not a Christian holiday. Um, you're right; it's not a it's not a religious holiday. It's something that um, uh, you know Jews are known as Yehudim, which is um, you know the 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 of that is based off thankfulness. Thanksgiving should be every single day for the Jewish people. That's what it should be. Okay. Um, yeah, I apologize for the, you know, internet breakup. When I saw that, I switched over to a different, uh, um, frequency. So I hope it, it became better after that. But thank you for, for bringing that up. And what stage in life does someone know what is the hardest thing for them? Like what is hard for a person when they are 20 years old isn't the hardest thing for them when they are 50 years old? Excellent question. And the answer is, is that whatever stage you are in, the hardest thing for you, that is your test for that stage. That is your purpose for that stage. So at, you're right. At every stage, there are different temptations that come. And at that stage, that's what you need to focus on. What could be, have, diff, have been difficult for you when you're 20s, when you're 40 or 50, that might not be as difficult for you. So you might have another test that doesn't mean that you're 20, you know, test, 20 year old test was not, uh, you know, is not still active, but that just means that maybe something else comes in, you know, in precedence. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for the kind word. Greater the test, greater the reward. 100%. Is it possible that Yitzhak was going to give the bracha he gave to Yaakov anyway? It was just not going to be called the the uh, the the bracha of the bechar and Esav was going to get a different bracha from the beginning. So the pasuk shot is that the the bracha was supposed to go to the bechar. Uh, the real understanding of it is is that Esav sold his bechara to Yaakov, so it was supposed to go to Yaakov in any case. But the the 
idea, the, the idea of what Yitzhak wanted was to give it to Esau because of the potential that he had. Yeah. Interesting. My grandfather always used to say, and not my grandfather, this is a comment, you want to know what a, who a person is, look at their shoes. <laughs> Interesting. Um, okay. Yes, exactly. Just like every day should be Mother's Day or Father's Day, not just once a year, 100%. Yeah. And that is the conclusion of all the questions. I want to thank everyone for joining us um, for the live Zoom uh, class. Anybody who does want to join us, you can uh, email me at rabbizitchanatoranytime.com or you can look at the – I started putting it on the YouTube uh, page in the comments – not in the comments, I'm sorry, in the description right on top. There's a link that you can join the, the WhatsApp group and that's where you post all the information and you can join from that thank you all for coming until next time may you have the most blessed week possible you've just experienced another torah class brought to you by torahanytime.com